Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. Jim, tell everyone what tonight's episode's about. Yeah, thanks, Eric. We're back with part two of our medical history with our friends, colleagues, and retired medical professionals, Fran Fiak and Rick Schrader. In part one, they educated us about field hospitals and general medical treatment, both during the Civil War and at Gettysburg. In part two, we're going to deep dive into some of the personal stories, the human interest stories of some well-known individuals who suffered grievous wounds at the Battle of Gettysburg. We're going to talk about the wounds, the effect it might have had on the people. And ultimately, how they were treated. So we are back for part two of what we're calling the M&M Report with our friends Fran Fiak and Rick Schrader. So as we always do, we want to note that Jim and I are speaking only for ourselves, not for any organization we are a part of or roles that we have outside of the show. I am speaking for Eric. I believe Jim is speaking for Jim. Can I speak for Eric sometimes? Sure, I'll allow that. I'll do that. All right. But in all seriousness, just so people know, we're speaking only for ourselves on this. In no way are we representing any organizations that we are a part of. And we should probably say in this particular case, our guests are speaking only for themselves. Absolutely. So if you're looking for ways to help the show, you can always follow us on social media, on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, Or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. If you get a chance, please write a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And also, if you're so inclined, you can give a one-time donation or every other time, however you want to do it, on PayPal at paypal.me backslash Gettysburg Podcast. Or if you're looking for an easy way to really help the show, Sign up and join our Patreon page. You can just give us a couple bucks a month and really underwrite a lot of the costs that we have in terms of editing, hosting, all kinds of things that we don't really talk about on the air, but Mm -hmm. it ultimately adds up. So you can find our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash Gettysburg podcast. So to all of those who have already donated, thank you so much. All of your donations allow us to continue our mission of what we think is putting out some of the very best Gettysburg content out there anywhere and keeping it free for everybody. Yeah, and we thank everybody for all their support, whether it be financial support, moral support, the reviews that Eric always talks about. You know, we thank you all for it. Yeah, every little bit helps. So uh, we really do appreciate all of our super fans out there and your continued support. Before we bring in Rick and Fran again, Jim. Tell everyone about tonight's sponsor. Yeah, speaking of support, we are once again recording from Gettys Gear, 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village across from the Tour Center. Once again, Superfan Carrie, Superfan Ray have opened their doors to us to allow us to record here, to find a studio home during these troubled times in which we live and in which we podcast. But for you, you guys can come and shop at Gettys Gear or call them at 717 717- 334-3747. And as we say every week, they've got all kinds of cool Gettysburg-themed stuff. They've got bags. They've got accessories. Cigars. Eric, doesn't every Civil War aficionado love a good cigar? 
Pretty much. You know, I can't tell you how many times I'm scrolling social media and I see somebody with a book of their choice, a cigar and a drink. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe some of you really love a good cigar and a drink while reading a book. Hey, whatever floats your boat. A cigar and a drink while listening to the podcast. Hey, I can't think of a better evening. And they've got coffee stuff, stuff for the gents, stuff for the ladies. You know, I mention every week this for the ladies and people ask me if that's real. Yes, it says that on the website. For the gents, for the ladies, and something we don't talk enough about, but they actually have a category of merchandise for Lincoln lovers. So if you're a Lincoln enthusiast, check out the website, come into the store, see what kind of cool stuff they got. Once again, we are coming to you from Gettys Gear, 777 Baltimore Street in Gettysburg. It's history with a sense of style. So now that we've got all that out of the way, let's bring in Rick and Fran again to do some deep dives into some characters that you might know in terms of the Gettysburg campaign that unfortunately uh, received wounds here. We'll kind of delve into that a little bit more. So I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. And welcome back for part two with licensed battlefield guides and medical professionals, Fran Fiak and Rick Schrader. Welcome back, you guys. Thanks, Jim. Eric, back. So in part one, we talked kind of an overview of Civil War medicine and Gettysburg treatments in general. In part two, we thought we would deep dive more into the personal and the human interest stories, uh, something that I guess you guys referred to as an M&M conference. Now, Eric and I, before the podcast, already removed all the brown M&Ms from your dressing room. So maybe you guys can go into more detail about what you mean by an M&M conference. Yeah, I did notice that in the green room, Jim, there were no brown M&Ms. No, what M&M stands for in the medical world is morbidity, which means sick or wounded and mortality. It's a venue, it should be the most important conference in the hospital uh, where people get together and talk about uh, patients who had complications, things that didn't go well, and what we can learn from that. And what Fran and I have devised over the the few years that we've been guides is to bring this sort of a discussion to guide education to really, as you said, Jim, take a deep dive into what really happened to these guys. What were their wounds? What did they go through? Um, how were they wounded? basically talk about what the outcomes of this sort of thing were. So these all start with wounds. And Fran has done a really a marvelous job of a description from some of the work that he's done that has been echoed by people who've been in in combat and, in fact, been wounded, a description as to what it feels like to be wounded. So I'll let him go ahead and start with that. So one of the things as guides and the general populace, we, we talk about the Battle of Gettysburg and we say 16,000 casualties on day one, 20 on day two, 15 on day three. We don't realize that those casualties are attached to people and those people are attached to families. Uh, we talked a little bit and it's very hard digging this information out is very hard because a lot of people don't talk about it. So as, as I was, as I read and I get a little snippet, um, I write it down a little bit of what the soldiers say it feels like to be wounded. Now you have to understand if you're on a Civil War battlefield, especially um, if you're new to it or relatively new to it, you train in places where things are calm, cool, and collected, not on a battlefield. Things are messed up, not working right. They're strange sounds you can't see, you can't hear. 
Uh, soldiers in battle will say that the world collapses around them. Uh, even, even Abner Doubleday stated at one point, I only knew what was around him. So when people say, how did Doubleday know the line was collapsing? He didn't get a text message from that side of the line. So you have to put yourself in these young soldiers' uh, mindset. Their, their average age is 18 to 23. And when you're that old, your life is half over in 1863. The average life expectancy is 40 to 42. And I can guarantee you that for the most part, they're here because they believe that they're not going to die for their country. The other guy is going to die for their country. They believe they're here for reasons and for their friends, but now they're going to be involved in this battle. Now, your body has a unique way of protecting your life, and it's a, a drug that we, we make it a drug, but you produce it naturally called adrenaline. Everybody on this podcast has experienced adrenaline, mostly when a car cuts you off on the highway, right? You feel that instant sting of attention, that adrenaline is what a lot of these soldiers and a lot of the body responses to wounding is going to be revolved to the adrenaline. Adrenaline preps the, the body for survival. Um, loss of bowel and bladder is common on a battlefield. Your heart rate will increase when you're, when you're on a battlefield and you have a heightened awareness from all your senses. That's why soldiers will report they could hear things that you can't normally hear. Now, new work has been done on this by a book called On Combat, where soldiers have been interviewed afterwards. You read stuff of people saying, I saw the bullet that hits me. Soldiers, that's a, a normal occurrence. Time slows down. Your life's in front of you. As you start to lose your senses of sight, your hearing picks up. They can hear things around them. They can hear their feet on the ground. They can hear the sounds of a whistle of a bullet going over their head, the zip of one going by their ears. That's not color. That's true. And when you can't see, your other senses become heightened. When you read of elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder courage, that's what they're doing. They're reaching out. They can taste sweat. They can taste sulfur in the air. And all this is happening to them. Their adrenaline is up trying to save their uh, lives. They're going to empty their stomach. Their pupils dilate. This is all happening. And now we're going to add in a bullet strike. Now, most soldiers will tell you that when a bullet hits them, there's no instant pain. And for those of us who shave on this program, Eric, maybe not you, no. you know if you get a razor cut on your face. It this is why I don't do it. <laughs> it doesn't seem to hurt till you see the bleeding. And we have reports of soldiers coming across the field of Pickett's Charge where, where artillery shells are bouncing off the ground, their leg being completely removed and tripping moving forward. Soldiers that get shot will say, why did you hit me? And it's not until their body realizes what's happening that it starts um, changing their anatomy and, and their body's going to react to this. So first of all, why do soldiers not die instantly in the Civil War? Well, the weaponry that they use are high-weight mini balls and low velocity. These are maiming shots. They don't have the velocity to kill you versus modern weaponry, which are low-weight, high-velocity. The military's thinking maybe we should go back to Civil War-type bullets because the problem with modern weaponry, it kills the enemy right away. And now you enrage the people coming at you. In the Civil War, we've all read those requirements where the soldiers, two or three people, will carry one off the battlefield trying to get out of here. So they're thinking that with small killing teams, maybe it's better that we don't kill the enemy, but we main them to do that. Also, now, there's a moralizing effect there, too. Oh, my you know, goodness. Flailing around, screaming, you know, when they're dead, they don't really bother you. 
That's right. And, and but when you see your your comrade with his back blown out by modern munition, you become enraged and fight. So um, with all these senses going on, now you're now you're hit with a bullet, you get tunnel vision, common reported. You see things clearly around you. You get visual clarity, even through all the smoke. Your body is trying to save your life. As the adrenaline starts to take effect in your body, blood is shunted away from your extremities, which is why soldiers will say, I'm cold and shivering, because your body's trying to save your heart and your head. So adrenaline will start to pull that away, which is why some of these tragic injuries, they don't die right away because their body is trying to do it. Rick will be talking later about what happens with blood vessels when they're struck. You get a deep awareness of what's happening around you. If you've had a limb removed, your first response is to pick it up and take it with you. That's not unusual. That's not an unusual feeling. They can hear the sounds around them. Cannon make a different bell tone thung depending on what they're firing at you. They know the sound of lead hitting a bone. They know the sound of lead hitting soft tissue. Men that are struck in the head and die instantly usually let out a groan and fall forward and fall backwards on the battlefield. They can hear around them brave men crying and praying, stout, hardy men cursing and swearing, some men laughing incoherently, all effects of adrenaline. It's strangely numb. All right. Um, they say that uh, intense awareness of your body and now what we call adrenaline in the medical field is called fear. They describe a hot burning if it's just the flesh involved, burning and pulling if it's tendons around your joints, burning and stinging and then ache if it involves a bone, burning and a deep dull ache if it's deep structures involved. Adrenaline's continuing to plump, pump blood to the brain. And as a soldier realizes that they're now injured, their whole purpose of the battle changes. It doesn't matter whether it's the Civil War, the Crimean War, or World War I, World War II, Vietnam, it becomes intensely personal. And they're no longer fighting for Lincoln or Davis, Lee or Meade. They're fighting for themselves to see the sun come up another, another day. So when we talk about these soldiers, I'd like your listeners to be in what's going on here. Soldiers will write things like, I tried to call out at the top of my lungs. I was screaming, but no words would come out of me. And then bayonet wounds. Rick, what's the, the range of a bayonet? About three feet. About three feet. I had to go to World War I to find somebody describing what it's like to be bayoneted. Bayonet wounds are terrible. They're personal. You can look into the person's eyes, but the only thing I found from a World War I soldier is that when he was struck with a bayonet, the, the blood rushed to his brain and he had a metallic taste in his mouth. So when we talk about the M&M, we're going to talk about the medical care of it. But you got to remember underneath this is a soldier that's just experiencing everything that we talked about here. And the other thing is, this is a description of what happens to everybody who's wounded. We're going to parse out some very familiar names and talk about their wounds. They would have been going through this, but so would have Earl Swiderska from, you know, McLean, Virginia or Pottstown, Pennsylvania. It's a, it's a great equalizer, this being shot and wounded, uh, no matter what happened. Guys, that's a perfect intro. So what we did ahead of time was we prepared a list of uh, individuals that we thought might be of interest to the listeners. You know, folks, I sometimes get a little bothered when we do this sort of thing because we always tend to focus on the officers, uh, the guys that everybody knows. We often don't give the common enlisted men their due. I wish we had time to tell the stories of everybody who was wounded or killed in Gettysburg, but obviously that can leave some 
openings as well for future episodes. So with that, we're going to cover, you know, probably in a lot of cases, some better known individuals. Fran, you talked about the blood rush and the adrenaline when one is wounded. And that immediately got me thinking of Winfield S. Hancock. And, you know, the fact that he is wounded during the thick of it on July 3rd, yet he still he still stays on the field to not only watch the action, but still bark out orders. Why don't we start with Hancock? Why don't you guys tell us uh, what happens to Hancock and what that experience might have been like? A bullet affects a general as much as a private, as much as the surgeon hit. Rick, uh, you're our Hancock expert on this one. <laughs> I don't know if uh, that's good or bad being an expert on it. It's a good. I mean... I think Winfield Scott Hancock, in my mind, is uh, most guides have heard this. Uh, I think he's the MVP of the of this battlefield. I think it was, in many cases, the high point of his career. Now, when we do an M and M in a hospital, we don't start off by saying uh, Winfield Scott Hancock got this. We we introduce patients only by their initials, and and we'll do a little bit of that. So W H is a 39 year old white male who was injured on the third day of the battle on July 3rd. So Hancock is sitting on his horse down towards the southern end of Cemetery Ridge as Pickett's Charge is coming across the road and up the field when he suddenly is staggered and falls from his horse. He is shot in a a very unusual location. He is shot in the right groin, very high up near the hip joint, so high up that when the staff members who came to assist him came with a tourniquet, they really couldn't get a tourniquet around it. And and as Hancock is is on the ground, he, he quite astutely says to the men around him, don't let me bleed to death. So And the, the wound is described as a gaping hole with blood pouring out of it. Now, this wound, in retrospect, we know that he's a very lucky individual because this literally was within a half an inch of severing the main artery that goes down his leg. As it is, it goes uh, behind his hip joint and lodges in the bony pelvis down where we sit in the bottom of our pelvis. Now, they, the staff uh, brings in some, some medical experts. Prior to that, one of the uh, of the staff who's there, well, apparently Hancock doesn't know um, an officer by the name of Benedict, who I think is in this, uh, the Vermonters, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. George Benedict. Yeah. So he tells General Hancock, "This is not arterial blood, General. You will not die. You will not bleed to death." And Hancock, I think, doesn't know Benedict from Adam, and he looks at him and says, "That's good. Thank you for that, Doctor." Um, and of course, Benedict is a staff man. A surgeon does get there, Dr. Doherty, who's the, the head surgeon for Hancock Second Corps. And he literally, again, this is standard medical care, reaches into the wound and pulls out allegedly a nail and some pieces of wood and turns to uh, Hancock and says, uh, you are not so badly hurt as you think. Well, I'm just going to tell you, somebody reaches into my pelvis and pulls a nail out. I think I'm hurt pretty bad. Um <laughs> But, Jim, you alluded to this. Hancock famously lays there, raised up on an elbow, refuses to leave the field until he can give more orders. And if I'm not mistaken, even sends a message to me that you need to counterattack and, and really uh, bring this uh, to a close. He's eventually put in an ambulance. And by all accounts, 
probably was taken to a division field hospital that we'll find out about reading Kirkwood's book at the Granite Schoolhouse Lane. That building doesn't exist anymore, but that may have been his first stop. And then he was taken ultimately down to Westminster, where the railhead was, transferred to Baltimore, and then back up to uh, his home in Norristown, Pennsylvania, via Washington. Hancock's injury results in a pretty serious medical problem for him. And if you look at his history, he's really uh, out of action for quite some period of time. Without getting too medical about this, this wound results in a chronic bony infection in Winfield Scott Hancock's pelvis. And this wound spits pieces of bone for the rest of his life. And he's really not back on the field until later on in uh, the year. He returns to duty at the end of the year on 1227-63. But he's troubled with this wound for the rest of his life. There's an interesting story of the effort to remove the bullet. That used to be something that was felt to be very important. we got to get the bullet out of there. Even even when Lincoln was shot, one of the initial efforts was to try to get the bullet out of the back of his brain. We now know we can do more damage going after bullets than just leaving them alone. But nobody could get the bullet out of Hancock's wound. And a fellow surgeon from Norristown called on him in late August and put together that, wait a minute, Hancock was on a horse. Why don't you assume the posture that you were in at the time, General? And Dr. Reed probed this and got the bullet out. And it actually, removing that piece of foreign material, went a long way towards Hancock being healed. But his wound, some of these people we're going to talk about, I'll refer to as lucky. I think Winfield Scott Hancock was very lucky that he survived this wound. Fran, you have anything else to add to Hancock? Rick, I, I guess a little bit here would be a good spot. He survives for many years with this wound. He didn't get a very common thing that would lead to revisional surgery called gangrene. Do you want to give them a little bit about gangrene and what makes that so deadly? Is it, do you think he had some of this in there? Not Probably not because of the blood flow. Well, the pelvis where he was shot has a very, very robust blood flow. And you're right. It's Gangrene is a condition, a disease that sets in usually in the extremities because of certain types of infection. And it literally can proceed in front of your eyes, march right up an arm or right up a leg. And when there were amputations done at Letterman as a general, Fort uh, Camp Letterman as a general hospital, those amputations were not done for gunshot wounds sustained on the battlefield primarily, but because of things like gangrene and infection. So I think Hancock's less likely to get gangrene because of where his wound is, but it's still, the trade-off is he does develop another medical condition that probably shortened his life carrying a chronic infection around. Now, he had other health problems at the end of his life, but uh, carrying a chronic infection in your bony pelvis forever is never a good thing. You know, I learned something there. I mean, obviously, like many of us, we tell the Hancock story on battlefield tours, and in the interest of time, I always describe it more or less simply as, you know, the the bullet, wood from the saddle, and a nail goes into his groin. And you can almost always universally watch all the men in the group squirm right. with that image. But now I can add a bony pelvis into it because I admittedly <laughs> yeah. did not know that. And Rick, what, what do we say about his wounding marker? What did Hancock say about his Yeah, the, uh, when they came back to dedicate his wounding marker, I'm sure, much to Colonel Batchelder's chagrin, 
Winfield Scott Hancock said, well, that's exactly where I wasn't when I was wounded. So <laughs> he said it was somewhere else. He described how he was laying. It just makes for a good story. Being shot in the groin is a pretty collective term, ranging from <laughs> some pretty dramatic injuries. This is a dramatic injury, but the groin to an orthopedic surgeon is the hip region and that area. I think the groin to the average male individual has a very specific connotation. Yes, I agree, but it, just medically, it's not just that. There and we kind of have a, a recurring theme of groin wounds. I mean, we've got Barlow, we've got Iverson. So, you know, we've talked a lot about groin wounds on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. One of those recurrent themes that runs, you know, just kind of out of the view of things. Well, we did add human excrement in part one for the first time. So I think we are branching out a little bit. Yeah, groin and excrement. It just indicates that the groin can be a very collective type of a wound, ranging from a soft tissue wound to worse. A bigger area on some patients than others, I would guess. (laughs) Maybe. All right. Great. In in the interest of time, that also got me thinking, you know, in part one, we touched on Robert E. Lee and we said we would come back to him a little bit. So we touched on how adrenaline can kind of pump somebody up when they're wounded or that sort of thing. How about the impact that illness or not feeling well might have on decision making? And in this case, let's use Robert E. Lee as our uh, test case. Well, um, in order to make decisions, you need to use your brain, the one above your shoulder, speaking of groin injuries. Um, and that brain requires oxygen. You can only, you can only live, your brain can only live four minutes without oxygen. And that sounds like a, an easy thing to do, but the process of taking air in at 21% room air and getting it into your bloodstream and getting it up to your brain and then having the brain use the oxygen to produce energy and then put the waste products back into the bloodstream is a very complex thing. Robert Edward Lee's got a lot of things going for him that aren't very good at this point at Gettysburg. First of all, like Rick said in the last one, he either has or has not had some type of heart condition. So his pump, the boxcars, the, the, the engine may not be working well. He sleeps sitting up, which means he may be collecting fluid in his lungs. And then he starts with a, a chronic fluid loss from, from diarrhea. And, it, and from what I don't, it, it's more than a day. All right. It's more than a day. And there's a variant of diarrhea that most soldiers get one or two times a year where it's bloody diarrhea. We don't know if he has that. With all that happening, he's lost his ability to pump blood. He's lost his ability to use the electrolytes that help move blood and transport it into his brain to make decisions. He's under a chronic sleep deprivation stage and more and more research coming out. The fact that Lee and me don't have enough REM sleep at night is a problem. And when you're tired and you're sick and you're not feeling well, and and that's when you need to be at your peak performance, Lee doesn't have that. He doesn't have that at Gettysburg, and he's trying to take in all types of stuff coming to him. So physically, he's got a lot of reasons why he's getting oxygen to his brain and just plain being tired is a problem. In fact, now the military will say that REM sleep next to water might be the most important things on a modern battlefield that they actually bring their generals down and say, you need to get some rest because you can't do it. And think about these Lee and Meade and every other soldier in there. Sleep is not a commodity that they have. 
And then, Rick, what happens to him towards the end there? Well, you know, his medical history, we're not talking about wounds with Robert E. Lee, but he did suffer some injuries, and we're talking about medical conditions. We need to remember Lee was thrown, I believe, thrown from his horse in the Antietam campaign and traveled to that battle in a carriage uh, because, or an ambulance. The, the reports say he broke one wrist and sprained the other. In the absence of x-rays, I'm not really sure what that means. But just know, as I used to tell my patients when we would operate on two hands, you find out who your friends are when both hands are out of commission. Um, and he would have as well. He got over that. In August, when he tendered his resignation to Jefferson Davis, and Davis did not accept it, he characterized himself as being increasingly physically infirm and not able to stand up to this. But, of course, Davis knew that uh, he really probably couldn't function without Robert E. Lee. On the heels of the cardiac or the heart issue we're talking about, you know, Lee dies in 1870. He has a bad heart, and he dies of a stroke. So it's quite clear that he was developing, if you will, cardiovascular or circulatory disease even as soon as the Civil War. But the last year of his life, while he was able to go back and forth to work uh, in his role as the president of of Washington College, he was uh, increasingly infirm. But he dies of a stroke, which the only difference between a stroke and a heart attack is what organ is uh, damaged by bad circulation. And, and arterial sclerosis, hardening of the arteries, is, is noted all through the surgical record. But Rick, he, according to he, Lee died because the strings to his heart were cut at Appomattox in his death certificate. <laughs> is that right? Well, uh, in, in, in a symbolic way, that may be true. What's the other saying? Died of a theory? Oh, maybe I'll take it. Somebody else. <laughs> All right, guys, I'm putting you on the spot. July 3rd, 1863, Robert E. Lee is feeling well. Does the order pick its charge? Yes or no? I'll go first. I think that there is a lot written about Robert E. Lee having the trots and diarrhea on July 2nd. I'm not one to subscribe to that one, and Fran alluded to this in part one, that one medical condition so clouding his decision-making that he was um, faulty. I think, and, and Fran alluded to this, he's got a reorganized army and he's working with people who don't maybe appreciate his leadership style. His one solid uh, uh, associate is not agreeing with what decisions they're making. I don't think that Lee makes decisions that are faulty on July 2nd that by extension, Jim, lead to the faulty decision to uh, order Pickett's charge. I think as many theories on that as there are licensed battlefield guides, probably, but um, I don't subscribe to the fact that just because he was afflicted with diarrhea, a Civil War soldier was afflicted with diarrhea five to six times a year. I mean, I read a quote once, bear with me when I say this, that one of the surgeons in the Confederacy said nobody had a solid stool in the Civil War until it was over. I mean, I apologize for being that graphic, but I don't believe that Lee loses at Gettysburg because he has a medical condition that affects him that much. Fair enough. How about you, Fran? I would I would agree. Uh, in the very end, what happens at Gettysburg, the buck stops at Lee and Meade. 
Um, if he if he was so sick that he couldn't make the decision, I think we would have something about it. I think it's all contributing to that, but I think that's part of the loss cause theory. If he wasn't sick with diarrhea, he'd have made a better decision. Okay, he may have been slower, but he was taking in information, and we know Longstreet didn't say anything about it. So I agree with Rick. Uh, yes, he's sick. That's not the reason. I think later on in the war, we do see instances where Lee's health affects his decision making in the Overland campaign, I believe at North Anna, but he's mm-hmm. afflicted very significantly there to the point where it really did. I just don't believe it rose to that level at Gettysburg. Yeah, I think what's interesting too, you look at this and, and often it's people talk about Lee suffering a cardiac event here. Very few people mention the diarrhea. Frankly, a heart attack sounds better than suffering from diarrhea. That's for sure. So, you know, I think also we look at this, Lee begins to suffer these symptoms significantly March, April of 63. What does he do in early May? He wins maybe his greatest victory. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm not an expert enough to say, you know, I know people that have had heart issues. You have your good days, you have your bad days. But I think it's hard to say that, okay, the heart issues, the health issues weren't a factor at Chancellorsville, but now they're a factor here just because he loses. Yeah. You know, I think if, if he wins, do we even mention this? Yeah, bingo. I was going to go there even with uh, after Gettysburg in terms of the retreat. I mean, Lee, Lee manages yeah. a very difficult, a very stressful retreat. And, you know, I'm not an expert on the retreat, but to the best of my knowledge, there is not a vast body of literature out there that says, oh, my God, General Lee was incapacitated during the retreat. And so, again, it seems to be selected to Gettysburg, we need a reason to explain why the quote-unquote great Lee lost. And I'll put, the, I'll put the point in that Lee's retreat from Gettysburg to get his army back, back to Virginia is mm-hmm. Lee's finest moment as a commander in the Civil War. Right. So, I, I mean, I think you're, you've got these two great moments, Chancellorsville and the retreat. You know, I think that makes it a little hard to say how much does this come in. So. Sure. And that might be the adrenaline after the loss at Gettysburg sustaining him. Um, the other thing I would, I would say if he did have a heart attack in March or April, he's recuperating from his heart attack at Gettysburg. Now, when you have a, a transmural heart attack or a big type of problem, that doesn't heal and replace it with muscle. It, it replaces it with a scar. I mean, so he loses muscle. And I think when you hear Rick describing the end of his life, that's what it sounds like that he, you know, his heart was functioning at 100% at the middle of March. Now it was functioning at 80% with the heart attack, and he's recovered to 85%. That's the normal way people do today. And he didn't have all the drugs to, to help make him get through that. So I think that's very true. Okay. Well, why don't we stick with our theme of high-ranking generals here? And begin this very special edition of the Dan Sickles Report. So in prepping the episode, obviously we wanted to uh, educate our listeners on the experience one might have when having a limb amputated. And can there be a more famous or often quoted case of that at Gettysburg than our very own beloved Dan Sickles? It is the late afternoon of July 2nd. 1863. I would be remiss if I didn't point out that I wrote extensively about this in my own Sickles at Gettysburg, but there's still a lot about that experience that we simply don't know with certainty. So do one of you guys want to uh, pick up with the Dan Sickles story? Sure. 
I'll be happy to do that, Jim. And um, we can talk in specifics uh, about Dan's injury, and we'll talk in generalities about as just anybody who's suffered an injury like this, what they might have been feeling, because that's a very variable thing among patients. I think your listeners, who are quite a learned group, know that in the afternoon of July 2nd, D.S. was in his 40s, uh, 44 years old, at least that's what I have, although I have 37 question marks. Was he, he was unclear about his date of birth, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. There's some unclarity about that, but he's in his 40s, a virile, masculine specimen in the prime of his life. Astride his horse, watching his boys try to hold that line out in front of him when he's either unlucky enough or the horse is smart enough to turn and General Sickles is struck by an artillery shell in the right leg. And this is a quote from Dan Sickles. And, and by all accounts and told transparency, this is lifted from uh, a book by Dan Sickles that I read by Jim Hessler. But this is Sickles talking. I never knew I was hit. I was riding the lines and was tremendously interested in the terrific fighting, which was going on along my front. And this is what I find very interesting. Suddenly, I was conscious of dampness along the lower part of my right leg. I ran my hand down the leg of my high top boots. These are boots above the knee and pulled it back. And I was surprised to see my hand dripping with blood. Now, Dan's not a doctor, but this is this next observation is really quite astute. Soon I noticed the leg would not perform its usual functions. And he actually lifted his leg over the saddle and got down off the horse. This is kind of where it gets interesting. He's laid on the ground somewhere near where he was wounded, which there's allegedly a mark there right by the bridle path, which Jim has talked about in the past. He has objections to um, being located by the bridle path, that is. People try to, or people do apply a tourniquet. He's alternately agitated or slipping into more of a shocky stage. And he's subsequently taken somewhere, and we'll talk a little bit about that, and he undergoes an amputation. Now, the interesting part to me is, and we've all seen the picture of Dan's leg, General Sickles clearly described he was wounded above the knee, but yet the specimen shows he was wounded in the middle of the leg. So I would suggest that he was actually wounded in two places and that the amputation, if you will, I'm going to guess was done through the upper fracture, leaving as much of his intact thigh bone or femur bone above that as could be. Now, the specimen doesn't contain that part of the leg, and I think there may be a reason for that. But the pictures that you see of General Sickles after the war, he clearly is an above-knee amputee. He's not had his amputation through the knee joint, which is what the specimen would suggest. So I think there was more to his injury than what we see just looking at the specimen which I think is kind of interesting. And a um, serious question here. You know, when I often tell the story about Sickles saying he did not realize he he had been wounded, he didn't realize he had been injured, would that be common to just not feel it like that? You know, that's a really good question. And that comes to uh, what would he have experienced. Pain among patients is so variable. If, in fact, this was a Bayard Wilkerson type of injury where 
the leg is hanging only by shreds, he might not have had very much pain. And for those of us who've had careers taking care of accident victims, I've had personal experience of people who've had traumatic amputations out on the highway on motorcycles. It's very interesting. Those people usually don't bleed to death because their blood vessels spasm off. You're almost more likely to bleed to death if the leg is half blown off, if you will. So is it possible that he didn't have a great deal of pain? I think it's very possible. I'll just tell a quick anecdote. I had a patient once who suffered traumatic amputation on a highway. And he told me when I talked to him uh, after we did the surgery to clean his leg up, he said, Doc, I was laying on the road and I looked across the highway and there was my leg. And I said, that's not good. Um, so people can be very collected and very stoic through something like this. And, and the adrenaline is helping him do that. <clears throat> and the fact that pain is a very big contributing factor to shock. So we don't hear him saying that. Hey, Rick, um, I just wanted to bring up, we said we want to talk about, it. talk about a tourniquet was applied in Civil War terms for, for the podcast listeners. A tourniquet was applied. Yeah. Tourniquets, even back then, they're standard. I, I think almost every combat soldier carries their own tourniquet to use on one of their peers if they're injured. But tourniquets were very common in the Civil War. Not every soldier had one, but all of the surgeons did. It may have saved Dan Sickles' life if he was bleeding as profusely, as seriously as he was, at least when he felt into his leg. But a properly applied tourniquet is a very, very painful object. I mean, if if you put a tourniquet on appropriately, it should hurt like hell. And it's got to be that tight to staunch the bleeding if it's profuse enough. Now, you know, again, I, I alluded to the fact that in, in near complete or complete amputations, the bleeding may be deceptively less. But surely the description of General Sickles later on, he does get shocky. He does get a little bit unresponsive. He had to have had a significant amount of blood loss at the time of the injury. Yeah, about, I think about 20% of your blood volume is contained in your leg at any one time. Mm -hmm. um, but we just wanted to bring up the fact it's not a tourniquet like you get when you give blood or you have an IV start. Yeah. This thing is a staunch, and they usually put a wad of something near the artery to clamp down. They are very painful. Okay, guys. So as we all know, Sickles is then removed from the immediate battlefield via uh, an ambulance and has his leg removed at a location that is still of some dispute among historians. I have my own opinion on it versus what the official historical record is. But what do you guys want to tell us about the uh, amputation itself? Well, I, w I wish we could tell you that we knew definitively where that happened. But Jim, as you touched on, it's really all over the place. You can find up to a dozen sources that will tell you where it supposedly happened. I think his injury was pretty severe. I found through your book and some other sources, at least two accounts that suggested that it was done in proximity to the Trossel farm. I've seen other accounts that it was done in a field hospital somewhere along the Tawny Town Road. And classically, I think it's stated that it was done at the Schieffer House out near the outlets on the Baltimore Pike. I think a surgery was done at the Schieffer House, but I think the amputation was done closer to the site of the wounding because of the magnitude of the injury. 
I mean, I think if you take the division field hospital, going back to part one, the division field hospital of the third corps at that time is along the Tawny Town Road. And it goes exactly to what you guys said in part one in terms of how you were all positioned. So that's always been my bet. But anyways, back to you guys. I know there are accounts that say that Sickles came into the Schieffer farm with his leg and he left without it. But again, I'm not sure what people can really see or or do. I think the surgery that was done there uh, was a cleanup of the wound. And they must have done a good job because all accounts, as fast as he recovered, I don't think he was wiped out with a serious infection. He's talking to President Lincoln two or three days later to tell him how it all went down. And the foresight to save the limb. So... <laughs> Which is a common thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah hey, back if Sickles didn't say, save my limb, I wouldn't be here right now. So. Right. And Rick, is there anything as a, an orthopedic surgeon you can say about that limb, a disease that Dan may have? Well, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about on the field when we do these M&Ms. What do we do today? Bear with me. If only the injury we see in the specimen is the total injury, and I don't think it is. Yeah, that can be saved. It's going to require multiple, multiple surgeries. And that's a patient that in 2020 uh, or 2021, I would say, look, there's still a real chance that you could lose this leg. One of the things as trauma surgeons, trauma orthopedic surgeons we get into is we need to realize it's about function. And believe it or not, you're sometimes better off functioning with an artificial limb than your own limb that's badly damaged, infected, you can't feel. And it's more of a detriment than an artificial limb or, in General Sickles' case, maybe a pair of crutches, given that it's 1863. And that knee was bothering him anyhow. He had a disease. Yeah, that's right. He, he did. I can tell you as a bone doctor, and this was a pleasant surprise when I, uh, I started to look at the specimens, both in Jim's book on page yes. 316 <laughs> and the specimen itself, which I have seen in the museum in, in D.C., Dan Sickles was afflicted with a teenage knee disorder that I'm sure many of your listeners have had. It, it sounds terrible, but it's quite quite simple, called osgood Slaughter's disease. And in conversation with at least Jim, I know, Jim, you were afflicted, ironically enough, with the scourge of osgood Slaughter's disease. Is that right? I am. I try not to, you know, burden my listeners with my own medical pain and, and things of that nature. But yes, in our mutual friendship here and talking about this one night at dinner and studying the image and you put your hand clinically, of course, on my knee, uh, we realized that James Hessler and Dan Sickles both suffer from Osgood Schlatter disease. And I can tell you, it hurts sometimes. Closing the loop. I would want to bear my pain as stoically as he did, but it hurts sometimes. I just think that's an ironic story. Yes. Oh, the irony. And as an anesthesia provider, no smoking before surgery. <laughs> or after. Or after. <laughs> Speaking of anesthesia, should we go on to Fran's specialty? Sure. We talked in part one about Freeman McGilvery. Now, again, not an injury that is suffered at Gettysburg, but it's a relatively well-known story. And obviously, McGilvery is a name that is known to us. Fran, you want to tell us a little bit about what happens after well, Gettysburg to McGilvery? I'd be glad to, but we're running out of time. And no, no, we have plenty of time, Fran. Go ahead, tell the story. <laughs> tell, tell the story, Fran. 
Freeman McGilvery, um, when Rick and I do our research for M&M Conference, what we look for are primary source documents. We try to find documents from people with medical history and medical knowledge. Now, of that tome of medical reports that we told you about in the first part of this, we talked about the medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion, about the 90,000 procedures performed. And of that, less than 100 are directly related to anesthesia. So the rest have to be from the surgeons. And Rick's eyes just rolled up for those of you that can't see him on the Zoom. But uh, Freeman McGilvery is an anesthetic death, an interesting one. Now, he, he'll be at Gettysburg and he'll McGilvery's line and on, on the second day and on the third day. But his death is kind of interesting. He'll die um, September 2nd uh, near Petersburg, Virginia, the Battle of Deep Bottom. He's 41 years old at the time. And Freeman McGilvery, we have a report of a witness of what happened to this gentleman um, Colonel McGilvery's uh, wife, his widow, will get a letter from an adjutant who was in, in the, the room where it happened. And he said, Colonel McGilvery decided to have an operation performed on a finger that was struck at deep bottom two weeks ago. There's a little prospect of this healing, and the operation was likely to be very painful. And he, adv- he advised with Surgeon Haywood and Surgeon Clark, medical director, and concluded to be put under the influence of chloroform, one of those anesthetics an unhappy decision that cost him his life. Now, dying under anesthesia happened in 1863. It happens today, but we have more monitoring to see what happened. But here's what he said happened to him. Yesterday, about 4.30, the surgeon came, made all the preparations. Chloroform was administered. And after a little bit of incoherent talking, he's going through the excitement phase. The colonel dropped off into a deep sleep. His breathing was regular, natural, and his pulse was strong as ever. Just as the surgeon started to remove the bandage, the colonel's breathing suddenly ceased. Artificial respiration was uh, performed at that time, which was a rolling method to do that, and Freeman McGilvery had died. Now, when we have an anesthetic death, first of all, that phase of anesthesia where you're hyper-excitable, one of the hyper-excitable things that happen, your heart can stop. There's vessels, and I mean, there's nerve uh, roots in your body that make your heart go faster, and those that make it go slower. And if you're not in deep enough anesthesia for surgery and you're hurt, sometimes your heart rate will slow and stop. I've had that happen to me before. I see it on a monitor. I give atropine. We stop the surgery. That doesn't happen very much. One of the things we could say is that the surgeon did it because he didn't wait till he careful was- Careful there, careful there. <laughs> he didn't wait till he was done, but he's only removing the bandages, which I wouldn't think would be a painful thing. Now- did he get too much of the anesthesia? It's early at the beginning. And I said on part one, they would have noticed his breathing slowing and taken the, the mask off or taken the cloth off. So that doesn't make sense. And it sent me out onto a, a search to try to find uh, what was going on. So originally, I thought it was one of these cardiac effects that he was somebody's touched his sore finger before he was deep enough to do the anesthesia. That's what I started. But then as we started looking at this, we find an article from like 1963 where Dennis from, I think, Lancaster starts talking about these anesthetic deaths in the Civil War. And he believes most of them are caused the same thing that killed Freeman McGilvery. Now, modern anesthesia today, we use anesthetic drugs, gases, liquids that come in bottles, and we vaporize them like we talked in the first part. Freeman McGilvery has a couple of things that we need to point out. First of all, he was, he's going to have a surgery 
two weeks after the initial injury. So I would assume most of the surgery at deep bottom is about over at this point. Secondly, he's going to have it at about 4.30 in the afternoon of this day, late in the day, going down there. Now, modern anesthetics today come in bottles that are light sensitive and sealed because these anesthetics tend to degrade when they're exposed and especially in hot areas. So anesthetics were something that they tended to covet and they wouldn't waste any. So my thought is Freeman McGilvery, number one, is in a hot place in Virginia. He's going to have his procedure late in the day. So they're either using chloroform that has been out in the sun or chloroform in a rag or something that has had a chance to degrade. Now, when agents made with chlorine are left in the sun, they will degrade into some very deadly things. One of the things they'll degrade into is a gas called phosgene. Now, if you've ever heard of phosgene, you've heard about it from World War I. There were all types of gases in World War I. There was chlorine that they would use, and then there was phosgene, and then there was a mustard gas that was used. But phosgene is a deadly, deadly gas, and they make it by taking chloroform, basically, and letting it degrade. So what happens with phosgene in World War I, it's a blistering, internal blistering agent of your lungs, and you only need four tenths of a part per million tenths to get an action that does this. And now McGilvery's got a mask over his face where chloroform that's probably old and maybe even on material that has been used earlier in the day. And the deaths from phosgene at high levels is just as described. So, Fran, what you're saying is this is an anesthetic death. Uh, yes. Okay. I just want to clarify that. Right. And for the most part, uh, this author, very much when you read about the anesthetic deaths, that's how they're all described. Sudden drop, sudden stop of breathing. Oh. Not like he drifted off. His heart stopped. And, and we're pretty sure it's one of those things we'll never know. Lodge gene, we think, is what's happened. And actually, the guy that invented chloroform will make some of the gases for World War One. So he is an anesthetic death. And from primary source documents, that's our best guess. It is remarkable. 70 to 90,000 operations done in the Civil War and less than 100 to 200 direct anesthetic deaths. We don't really do much better than that nowadays. I mean, anesthetic deaths are rare, but they were rare in the American Civil War. I was actually going to ask that. How does that compare today? I mean, I'd have to do the math, but yeah. the risk of you not waking up. I used to tell my patients, Eric, the risk of you not waking up from the surgery is a, uh, it's a lot more dangerous to drive home from the office. Today. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's a lot. The risk of you dying in a plane crash is higher than you dying under a general anesthetic. Right. Very safe. And, and that's why modern anesthesia, there's an anesthesia team and a surgical team. Mm -hmm. I don't tell Rick how to fix the bone. And while he's operating on putting you back together, I'm making sure your heart's going and and everything's that we see. If it was a, a vagal response, the slowing of the heart rate, I would see it right away. And what do we say, Rick? Stop operating, give atropine. I've even had experiences in the OR where we've done CPR a few minutes to push that drug around to start them up and get them deeper. And that when we were bantering on the first part, when I say it's time to wake up, that's the end. Because if I keep them in that deep level, then they're not going to wake up in time to move on to the surgery schedule. But that's the deal. But I think Freeman McGilvery was poisoned. Wow. Sad end to a Gettysburg hero. Yes. Yeah. All right. How about uh, we want to make sure we get some coverage here to the Confederate side of the field. I'll throw some names at you guys. How about John Bell Hood? 
a, a well-known general who we haven't done a lot yet with here on the podcast. Right. This is really one of the most interesting things that, that I've come across in my time as a guide. Like any Gettysburg student, I knew John Bell Hood suffered a, quote, crippling left arm injury on July 2nd, and he rendered his arm useless for the rest of his life. Now, as a, as a, as an orthopedic surgeon, I presumed that that meant he was hit with fragments of shell, damaged the nerves at the base of his neck around his shoulder, and left him with a withered, useless arm. Eric, I think you mentioned earlier that sometimes these medical reports are rather dry. Mm-hmm. In fact, the surgeon that took care of John Bell Hood was very specific in his operative report, which I'll get to, about the injury. So Hood is supposedly um, injured in the afternoon at the Bushman Farm. He's taken to the Plank Farm over along Willoughby Run Road. Uh, he's given stimulants because he does get shocky, uh, even though his uh, injury is an extremity injury, he still does kind of go into shock, which realize that can just be from pain and it, it doesn't necessarily mean he's lost a lot of blood. We talked in episode one about doctors evaluating injuries. Now, John Bell Hood's a big deal. He gets the benefit of four or five surgeons looking at his injury and they say, no, we don't need to amputate this. We will do what's called a resection. We will remove part of the damaged tissue and we won't have to do an amputation. The surgeon who does that operation is named uh, John T. Darby. And when I would do an operation, at the end of the operation, we dictate a very thorough and meticulous operative note. It is a statement of fact. There's no agendas. There's nothing made up. I made the incision here. We went down. We moved this muscle, blah, blah, blah. J.T. Darby's operative report exists for John Bell Hood. And he describes the injury. And I'll try to give you a description of it so the listeners can appreciate it. This was an entrance and exit of wound just below the left elbow. The fragment or bullet, whatever it was, probably a fragment, entered the upper forearm uh, directly on top of the arm and exited on the inner side of the elbow near the funny bone. It broke one of the two bones in the forearm. The operation that was done through a four-inch incision was the removal of that damaged part of one bone. He did develop an infection, not unusual, but his surgeon by Christmas on 1224 describes the use of that arm as uh, and remember, Hood has a much more serious injury at, Chickam- at Chickamauga right. in September right. of 1863 that he probably should have died from but did not. But by Christmas, with his upper extremity, he can use crutches. He's got full range of motion of his elbow, left wrist, fingers, and left hand, including his thumb. The only thing he lacks is some forearm rotation. Now, I would interpret that as not a crippling arm injury. And in fact, when you go back through the record, I think coupled with his much more severe injury at Chickamauga, the assumption is that this was just addition to the leg injury and led down that dark road that we all know about John Bell Hood as becoming a narcotics addict and ordering the charge at Franklin when he was all whacked out. And John Bell Hood did not have a forever crippling left arm injury at Gettysburg. He had a wound that required surgery, but he had a resection. He didn't have an amputation. 
And his injury at Chickamauga was much, much worse uh, than his injury at, at Gettysburg. The decision to do the resection, if this was private John Bell Hood, would they have done the resection or would they have amputated? I think it would be circumstantial, Eric, because the wound is not that severe. His arm mm-hmm. isn't blown apart. There are two wounds, one where the missile went in and one where the missile came mm-hmm. out. If the circumstances were that, look, I can do this in a half an hour <clears throat> and it isn't going to take me two hours, I think if that was evaluated by the group of surgeons, maybe not five of them, but two of them, I think the discussion would have been, you know what, I think we can save this. Uh, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they would have done a resection on really anybody. But you bring up an interesting point, Eric, when you look at medical stuff, you have to go back to 1863. State of the art back then was to amputate. In fact, Jonathan Letterman is kind of complaining that we're not doing enough amputations and we're trying to do a section. So it's easy to look back from 2021 and say, oh, they were butchers. But man, it was state of the art back then. I tease Rick all the time. I said, do you think someday somebody's going to say, can you believe back in 2020, they put titanium in people's hips? And that's kind of how medicine advances. That's right. Hey, I've got titanium in my neck right now. (laughs) And the reason I kind of posed that was you said a group of surgeons looked at him, which, you know, the more people looking at it, the more discussion you have. Certainly, I think there's more discussion over a major general than there probably would be a corporal or a private. On a battlefield. So. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, if that had been Robert E. Lee's arm, there would have been 10 people there looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys. How about uh, General William Barksdale? Another uh, Confederate injury that I know you guys have some strong opinions about. Right. William Barksdale is um, a Confederate general, Mississippi. He is uh, 42 at Gettysburg. I have to, I'm going to read you some accounts from people who found General Barksdale. I understand. He's always referred to as portly gentleman. He's got a little bit of a weight problem. But General Barksdale is one of these people who will be treated at the Hummelbaugh farm. We talked about that in the first part. This was a forward aid station that as the night goes on, morphs itself into a field hospital. So that's kind of how this whole Barksdale thing came down. Report of his injury at the time, the only person that has more reports of his injury is John Burns of Gettysburg. He was either shot nine times. A federal captain ordered the entire company to take him down. He was hit at least three times with a punctured lung. He was shot a dozen times or more. So let's just say that he was shot. Uh, Private David Parker and musician Robert Cassidy from the Union side, 14th Vermont and 148th Pennsylvania, sent a letter to sent letters to home. And it says, we pulled General Barksdale from an area west of Plum Run on the battlefield around midnight. We attempted to give him water from a canteen, but the general could not sit up enough to drink anyway. And when he did, the water came out of the wound in his chest. Now, he's also spattering blood when he breathes. It's coming out. So Rick talked in the first part that some wounds weren't deadly. And actually, a wound through the chest, you stood a chance to survive if it doesn't hit any of the big things in there. And Barksdale is now into that category of people in here. Now, we do have one report from Confederates that found him, but he was too portly to carry back to their side. So Barksdale was a big guy, and getting him out of there was a problem. Now, um, he will be taking uh, other accounts. The, the chest wound was large and under his left breast, and it couldn't have been made by a, a, a mini ball. He had a fracture and two wounds to his legs. He asked several times if his wound was mortal, and he, he was told that it was. Uh, musician Cassie, everybody's writing about General Barksdale because he's also 
talking through the night because he's lapsing in and out of consciousness. He's saying, you guys are in trouble. Longstreet's coming tomorrow. We're going to get you. We're going to get the whole thing. So what do we know about Barksdale? He's, he's been shot multiple times. He's got wounds in his legs that nobody seems to talk about. Everybody talks about this large gaping wound under his left breast that when he drinks water, it comes out of the wound. And when he breathes, air and blood is exposed and spit out from this wound. Now, when Rick and I look, we look for a primary source document. And at the Hummelbluff farm is a soldier named A.T., a surgeon named A.T. Hamilton, Alfred Thorley Hamilton. He's with the 148th Pennsylvania. This is in the 148th Pennsylvania's regimental history. And Rick, I think it's in Mouse's book too, is it not? Yeah, yeah. Mouse is a, a tome. Yeah, if you want to buy that book now, you, you got to find it. It's a couple hundred bucks. Uh, but this is a primary source uh, document. And here's what A.T. Hamilton said. My examination of the corpulent, bald Barksdale's left chest through his short round jacket, whose sleeves were trimmed in gold, and his left leg, whose torn trousers were also trimmed in gold. Barksdale's blood was spraying from his chest wound with every breath he took, and all that can be done for him was morphine as I was the only medical officer at the center and the front during the second and third day of July, I, I will attend to General Barksdale. He was shot through the left breast from behind. Now, what that says is, and even other historians have said, no, he shot under the left breast. The way Thorley writes his report from behind is in the next line. So it, as you read it, shot through the breast, but if you go to the next line, it says, from behind. Now, with this information, I was blessed to have trauma surgeons, and I showed them all this, and they read it and said, it's an exit wound. Think about your back, all right? A bullet enters that structure around the back. We all know that lead mini balls deformed to shape and was probably deflected from his back somewhere out under the left chest. It either tears the esophagus where the water, we explained the water coming out, the heart was contracted, missing, whatever. It didn't hit any large vessels, but it was still enough wound that he comes out. Barksdale is, is shot from behind. And from the only surgeon we have, Alfred Thorley Hamilton says it, and it's written a couple places. Uh, why it's not reported that way is he's a general shot from behind. Now, I'm not saying anything about his courage. It could be from Union soldiers. It could be from his own soldiers. Look, nobody knows. And like we said at the beginning of this, a bullet doesn't care what your rank is. But we're pretty sure that Barksdale uh, was shot from behind. He's buried in the Hummelbaugh uh, farm. And I'm pretty sure that the wound that everybody takes is for real is an exit wound, not a entrance wound. Just one thing to add to that about getting shot in the chest. You'd think that would be a, a pretty uh, devastating and universally fatal injury. I mentioned in part one being shot in the brain and the abdomen was you actually had about a 30% chance of living if you were shot in the chest. It quite simply is what Fran alluded to. If it hits something important, you're going to die and you may die quickly. Barksdale dies of significant injuries. Those were not survivable wounds then. They're barely survivable wounds now. If you have a tear in your esophagus or your swallowing tube, that's a devastating injury. But it is possible to survive a wound to the chest in the Civil War. And, and we don't have the modern stuff in 1863 that we do today. We could... For William Barksdale, he could have probably been saved quite well. He could have had a feeding tube put in. We could bypass his mouth. We could put a chest tube in and re-expand that lung. It would be a long recovery, but yeah, he could have. Yes. Yeah, and of course, then they talk about that evening again. He gets quite delirious. He's saying, look out, you're going to have Longstreet in your rear. And 
all kinds of stuff with that, which again would make sense with, you know, what you guys have told us about what these uh, individuals would have been going through. I think that's an interesting point that you guys were saying. There's a chance if this same thing happened today to Barksdale and he goes to a trauma center, there's a good chance he could probably be saved. I think that's something that we see today with combat casualties. We are so good at fixing these things that, you know, things that even 30 years ago would have pretty much been a death sentence. You'll survive. Now, of course, long term, what are you left with? But, you know, I think that's something to be said that we are really good at what we do today uh, in terms of, of surgical procedures and medical care. Yeah. All right, guys, maybe we got time for one more story. Should we move on to July 3rd with uh, Confederate General James Kemper? Now, as a quick anecdote for years, when I've been doing pickets charge programs, I would often say to folks, tell me all the generals killed in this assault. And without a doubt, somebody would say Kemper because of his final line in the movie Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that's only a fraction of the story. You guys want to tell us the real story? Sure. Um, I'll start with this, Fran, and you can jump in. So James Kemper on July 3rd, yeah, as we know from the uh, movie, uh, they tell me it's mortal, General. Oh, I, 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 I hope not, General. James Kemper is on his horse when he also is shot in the left groin. So we're back to groin injuries. This is a remarkable case. I mean, we've said that about a couple of these guys. He should have died from this wound. Uh, this bullet entered up near his hip in the groin area, allegedly hit the bone, but didn't fracture it. So I'm not really sure I'm buying that. And then went up towards his spine. Now, as somebody who's is a medical professional, to me, that means the bullet probably should have passed through the abdominal cavity. And he would not have survived that because as we've talked about, abdominal wounds get infected, people get peritonitis. That's a life-threatening infection, and you can't survive it. And, that, and that's because the abdominal cavity contains your sore system. Yeah. I mean, if you think yeah. about it, when you eat a banana, it never goes inside your body. It is taken through. All the, the way through a tube. Yeah. That's the source system, and that's why your uh, belly wounds are so terrible, because you're going to get infected. That's why appendixes get taken out before they're ruptured. But when you read about Kemper and his time in the hospitals, whether it was over in the Confederate hospital beyond the Plank Farm and that area, then ultimately I think he ends up at the at the seminary as a as a patient. He's described as as being in severe amounts of pain. Well, all these guys who got shot are in severe amount of pain. But the, everybody comments about how much pain he was in, and he does survive the wound. He goes on to become the governor of Virginia after the war. But when you read his biographies, he definitely has permanent nerve damage in his left leg. He cannot walk normally, and he still has a lot of incapacitating pain in that leg. So from what I'm able to glean, I think this bullet went into his hip, ranged up behind his abdominal cavity, lodged near his spine where the nerves come out in basically an electrical circuit and damaged the nerves to the point where he never regained full use of his left leg. I think that's a remarkable injury to survive. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think, and this is true of nerve injuries, I think he might have been paralyzed from the waist down for a period of time until the injury kind of uh, with time 
became more permanent on the left side with a full recovery on the right because he could walk afterwards. But uh, he did not die, even if uh, he told Robert E. Lee he was going to. So. And that's part of the protective of how you're put together. Your anatomy surrounds that sore system with a, a membrane and just just like just good luck. It didn't it didn't get him. So Rick and I will tell you all the time, we have people who should have died that didn't die, people that died that shouldn't have died. That's pretty much the deal. With Kemper, you know, we talk about the paralysis and things like this. Uh, you know, today someone has a wound like that, they're gonna have a long road to recovery including quite a bit, I, uh, I would assume, rehabilitation. Was there anything comparable to that for these Civil War veterans? You know, you you lose a limb. It takes time to adjust to to the artificial limb for people that had nerve damage. What could have been done in the 1860s for these people? You know, that's an interesting question, Eric. Ironically, and maybe sadly, we can't do any more about that injury in 2021 than we could in 1863. Hmm. We cannot repair nerve tissue. Mm-hmm. A stroke is damage to the nerve tissue in the brain. It's permanent. A spinal cord injury that's complete with complete damage to the spinal cord is a permanent injury. The nerves to our arms and legs, once they exit the spinal canal, have some potential for recovery, but mm-hmm. we never know how much. Mm-hmm. I've had patients with severe pelvic injuries from motorcycle accidents that they haven't reached their full recovery from nerve damage for two years. We mm-hmm. just never know. But the sad part about it is you can't sew those nerves up. There's right. no medicine to give people to make the nerves regenerate, even though that research is being done all the time. You just have to wait and see, try to rehab as much of the muscle groups that, that you can and wait and see how the injury resolves. And was there a sense of that, that, you know, rehabilitating, you know, trying to build up the muscles was, were these things that medical professionals would have done with these patients? I mean, I guess, for lack of a better term, occupational therapy. Well, the, a lot of the general hospitals that we talked about in part one did have a, a, they didn't call it a rehab uh, mm-hmm. setting, but when you read about these injuries, there's a lot of what we would call physical therapy being done, mm-hmm. massage of the extremities. They used electrical stimulation a lot to fire mm-hmm. the muscles to get them to recover, hydrotherapy and, and getting mm-hmm. them into water. So a lot of this was done, of course, while the, the injury just got better on its own, but mm-hmm. there certainly was an eye to that. And, and it's interesting, even an amputation won't always stop the pain from a nerve injury because right. people still feel their feet or their legs for a long time after you remove an extremity. Fair enough. And I think uh, although Kemper had a long road ahead of him, he does have some of my favorite lines in the movie Gettysburg. So <laughs> we, we can remember him from that. So, all right, guys, I think we are uh, more or less out of time. Eric and I are both in agreement that we need to have you guys back and do okay. some more of these stories. Since be happy to come back. Since we clearly only scratched the surface. Uh, real quick in closing, any parting comments? You know, I see this becoming a more popular topic of study. Fran, any thoughts? One of the sad things and the good things, every war advances medical history. Vietnam War showed us that young men can get um, plaque in their carotid arteries already. Uh, battlefield surgery has, has changed big time. Uh, anesthetics are now given total intravenous. It's called TIVA. We can do it on the battlefield with syringes and, and devices that can do it. We have packs called, uh, Rick, we, we were trying to come in. We think it's called quick, 
quick clot. If you're, if you're shot in the gut, they literally throw this pack of stuff in and it's got collagenous tissue in that causes bleeding to stop. Surgery um, is better and faster. Um, you get to, to high quality. Certainly things that we have today, they didn't have in the Civil War. They didn't have intravenous uh, IV. They didn't have the ability to give blood to people. They didn't have the ability of a clean, sterile OR. They didn't have the ability of any of the diagnostic stuff that we do today. Orthotics in the Civil War were terrible. The hanger company made, why doesn't Dan Sickles wear his pr prosthetic? It's probably too damn heavy for him to wear. Yeah. And it would rot all the stump tissue around. Every time we go into war, we come out better. Just like with this COVID thing that we're dealing with now, the fact that we're figuring ways to get it, every time some type of a disaster happens, medicine moves in, in leaps and bounds. So when, when Rick and I talk about medicine in the Civil War, as sad as we are for those that have passed away, we realize that some of the stuff we did in the hospital, even down to trauma, uh, the one golden hour, it comes from Letterman. It comes from the Civil War, and, and we stand on the, the shoulders of giants. So why are we interested in it? Yeah, we do, we do talk. We say, could you save this person? Maybe. But in the very end, we still die of the same things. We have antibiotics now. Um, we still amputate for vascular problems and gangrene. We're still not the perfect machine. What do you think, Rick? Well, I agree with all that. And I guess in closing, Jim and Eric, what I would ask the the listeners to understand is that this battle lasted three days for the, the men who fought it. Just remember that the battle for the medical staff went on for a long time afterwards. The accounts of the surgeons at the Spangler barn are that they got an hour's sleep over five, six, seven days. Guys had to quit operating because their hands were shaking because it was so weak. These men did yeoman's work that they could always be proud of. And the battle for the medical staff went on a lot longer than the military. Yeah, you know, and in closing, I just want to say uh, we've gone two parts of this with really without really mentioning the groundbreaking work of historian Greg Gogo, who mm -hmm. really started a lot of the study, his book, A Vast Sea of Misery in a Strange and Blighted Land. But Coco also said that he hoped someday in the future historians would build upon his hospital and his medical work. And uh, I would argue that it's really you two guys who are doing that. You guys are really the current standard bearers for Greg Coco's work. Uh, licensed Battlefield Guide Rick Schrader and Licensed Battlefield Guide Fran Fiak. And once again, thank you, Rick. Thank you, Fran, for what I think have been two outstanding episodes here. I know I've learned a lot listening to the two of them. You know, like a lot of us, you know, I'm more interested in the battle stuff and the human interest stuff. But to really get that better appreciation of what the wounded would have gone through, whether it be on the field, in a field hospital or during the recovery, uh, I think it's just been a fascinating couple of segments from Rick and Fran. Oh, absolutely. And I think, once again, it just adds to the knowledge we have of this event. And I think it also shows how, as guides, we bring, in some cases, our own personal experience yeah. into what we do professionally. Well, you know, and you would think, what are the odds of the guide force having not one, but two retired medical professionals from Johnstown, Pennsylvania? But all I can say is Johnstown's loss 
is Gettysburg's game. And, you know, looking back, I'm just sorry that Fran could not have put me under for a surgery and Rick couldn't have operated on me. Yeah, you know. I would have liked that. Yeah, you know, you, you know if I'm going to have my leg amputated, I'm calling Rick and I want Fran to put me under. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm with that, yeah, so. you know what? With Fran, I don't think we're going to have any Freeman McGilvery issues. Now, we uh, did did not take listener questions this time, in part because we're recording the episode via Zoom well in advance. But I think we talked with them on the episode about it. But in any event, we're going to maybe talk about maybe we'll do have them come on Facebook or Zoom or something and, and do some listener questions at a uh, future date. Yeah, I think it'll be great for our super fans just to kind of interact beyond just asking a question and it's also something we might try for other episodes down the road bringing in guests for more of a live edition of the show because wouldn't every good and true super fan want to interact with rick and fran and maybe rick and fran would want to interact with the super fans the best listeners in the podcast universe with that we want to thank you all for listening this has been the battle gettysburg podcast take care and stay well